Adiós, acudí, mi angustia escuchó De aguas profundas me rescata Llegó mi clamor a su palacio de cara Hey church, tonight we begin a new series, which is really an old series, called Making Our House a Home. It is our annual series and campaign that we do at this time every single year because we want to reinforce who we are as a church. Maybe you've been attending for years. I want to remind you of the home that God is calling you to be a part of and to engage in. Maybe you've joined us for the first time this year online, or you began to attend some of our physical services now that we are open at 5 p.m. in Brickell. But we want you to know that our desire as a church is not to be a house. What is a house? A house is a place that you go. You see, when you go, uh, you travel and you go rent out an Airbnb, can't wait till we can start all doing that again. Some of you are starting to, I know. But when you go to a house, it means it's really someone else's. You rent out a house, you visit someone's house, it's not yours. You may critique the way that it's designed, you know, I don't like the furniture layout there, why they choose that paint color. But a home is something that you belong to. It's something that has your memories and your footprint and your imprint and your voice and your opinions and perspectives are scattered throughout that home in different ways. You see, we want to be a church that's not, that is not a house, but is a home. We want to make our house a home. And it happens through you. It happens through how you engage in the church, how you give of your time and your talent and your treasure. And at the end of this series, right before Thanksgiving, we will have a pledge day, a day where you're invited to pledge to be a part of making this house a home so that everybody that walks in our doors or joins us online would know that they can belong here. Everybody is welcome to Crossbridge Brickle. And we're going to see that in the Acts chapter 16, which is the passage that we're looking at, where we see that there is a home to belong. God's church is a home for you to belong. And so if you have your Bible at home, you can turn to Acts chapter 16, or you can look on the screen below, where it says this, starting in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to 
Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, it's important for you to know that the we is Paul and Silas and Luke, the author of the book of Acts, and young Timothy. So that is who's traveling. It says that they remained in the city of Philippi for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well. And she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So or she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They're advocate. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. To accept or practice. The crowd joined in, attacking them, and the magistrates tore their, their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here in the story, it begins with Paul and his friends, his companions. They are on a missionary journey, and they're traveling through different cities. And so we know that Paul is with Silas, his friend, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, and Timothy, this young new believer and missionary who's coming alongside of Paul. And they're traveling here to the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi was the leading city of the region. It was a bustling city with a lot of influence. And when they arrived, they would have done what they did everywhere else they went, which was to look for the synagogue. You see, when Paul arrived in a city, he would look first for the synagogue because Paul being a Jew, formerly a Pharisee, meaning he was very devout and very religious and zealous as a Jewish religious leader, would have gone to the synagogue so that he might begin to have conversations with those there that understood the language that he was speaking. And he would begin to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And as many of that synagogue would begin to be saved, he would begin to go share throughout all of the city with the Gentiles, those that are not Jewish, the gospel of Jesus, and he would begin to build the church. This was Paul's typical operation. But when he gets to Philippi, there's no synagogue because there are very few Jews in the city. It is not a significant religion whatsoever. 
It's not really accepted in this area. And so he hears about this place of prayer down by the riverside where there are some Jewish believers and some Gentile believers who have converted to Judaism. And so he and his friends, they say, hey, let's, let's head out there. I mean, it's got to be nice to go worship and pray by the river. So they leave the city and they head down to this riverside worship service Bible study. And there they meet a group of women. And they begin to discuss with them and they have this discourse. And one of the women there is named Lydia. And Lydia is from a city called Thyatira. Now Thyatira was famous for manufacturing purple dye and purple goods. So they would use this purple dye to put into carpets or clothes, and it was high, high luxury. Very expensive, very desirable. And Lydia is a trader. She owns her own fashion company. She's like the CEO of Versace, but everything she has is purple. And she's very wealthy. We know this because she has a home here in Philippi, which is probably one of many homes that she has in the different cities where she goes and does business. And she's also a God-fearing Gentile. She's not Jewish, but she's come to believe in the God of Scripture, the God of the Old Testament. So she's here with these other Jewish women, and they're praying, and they're having this Bible study, and Paul begins to share with them the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure he would have done what he has done in many other instances, which he would have begun to talk about the Old Testament. And he would have begun to say to them, you know, you look at the law of Moses and the prophets, but don't you see that the entire Old Testament is actually pointing to Jesus? The prophets are speaking about Jesus. See, the law of God we cannot fulfill, but Jesus himself perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And we, every year as Jews, have this day of atonement, Yom Kippur, where we kill the sacrificial lamb, and its blood is an atoning substituted it's atonement for our sin well jesus was the lamb of god who died on the cross for your sins and atoned for your sin as he begins to have this rational discourse with lydia it says that the lord opened her heart to pay attention to what paul was saying now the The Greek is very interesting there because it says that the Lord opened her heart to be attracted to what Paul was saying. See, Paul was speaking very rationally. He was walking through Scripture. He was doing this kind of intensive Bible study, and she's paying attention, but she's really attracted to what he's saying. God is using this intellectual and rational conversation to open her heart to the truth of the gospel. And when that takes place, we read in verse 15 that she was baptized, meaning she came to believe in Jesus Christ. She was baptized and her whole household was baptized as well. And then she says, listen, you can't just leave. You have to stay with me. I mean, I imagine she had a huge house. You got to stay in my house. I got a lot of rooms. I got kids running around, but you know, we can put you over here. You got to stay with me. And she says she prevailed upon them. Like, you don't have a choice. You're staying in my house. And so they stay there. Here's what's so interesting. Lydia is the first 
Christian that we read about in Europe. Isn't that interesting? The very first Christian in Europe that we read about here is a non-Jewish woman who's a CEO of her own fashion company, very wealthy, with a strong moral compass. Very different than what you would expect. Very different than the very first believers in Jerusalem who were primarily men and of Jewish heritage, not extremely wealthy. Very different. Except for when Jesus died and rose from the dead, the very first people to see him resurrected were women. You see, Jesus is overthrowing systems because during this time period and in this culture, women were treated as less than, than men. Now, Lydia had more opportunities being a Gentile woman and being from Thyatira. She was able to make a lot of money and do very well for herself, but she was still pushed down by a system. And yet, she's the first Christian convert, first believer. Interesting. What's God doing? Well, he's not done. So after this takes place, every single day after the Sabbath, that was the first day they met on Saturday, where Lydia comes to faith and she's baptized, they decide to go back to the place of prayer every day to have some more conversations. And maybe there are some people that haven't come to faith yet. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they're really discussing how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But every day that they're going there, they meet another woman, a woman with a very different story and who is very different from Lydia. It's a woman known as the slave girl. She's not even given a name. And it says that she has a spirit of divination, meaning she's been possessed by some type of spirit. And she's controlled and oppressed by these masters that own her. So she was engaged in this sort of prostitution, but also in this fortune telling where she was making all this money because during this time in this city, people believed that she had the ability to share oracles and prophecies from the God of Apollo. The God of Apollo was heralded as the one who knew the future and could give you prophecies and was morally superior and they believed that these involuntary utterances that this slave girl had and just this bizarre behavior was, was her really acting as a medium between the god Apollo and the people and that they'd pay a lot of money to find out what their prophecy is and what they need to know. So this, this girl, this slave girl, Every single day while they're walking to the place of prayer, she's crying out to Paul and his friends, those with them. And here's what she's saying. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And you'd be thinking, wow, she, okay, so she, did she just like understand this? She had this spirit of, of divination, this possession. She's like encouraging them. She's promoting them. But it really reads more like a mockery that this spirit that has possessed her, these men, servants of the Most High God, hey, listen, they have the way of salvation. Downplaying them. Discrediting them. They come to me. I'm the fortune teller. I'm the one that can really show you salvation, show you what you need to know. 
And this was constant. Constant, time and time again, to the point where Paul turns to the girl, but really it says he turns to the spirit that has possessed her, and he casts out the spirit. And immediately the spirit leaves her and she's free. Free from that spirit that oppressed her and also free from the system that was oppressing her too. Because it says that her owners are mad. They are angry that she's been freed of this spirit. And they're angry at Paul and Silas and his friends. Why? Because now their source of income has been removed. She no longer has these utterances. She's no longer seen as this fortune teller because she's been released from this spiritual oppression that was pressing heavily upon her. You see, God's power comes to her through Paul's words, and she's set free. And when you are set free by God's power, you are free indeed, and she is free. I have to imagine after this that Lydia invites her to stay at her house too. Hey, come stay with me. Maybe she pays the owners because she's of no use to them anymore. Says, here, here, take some money. She's going to stay with me now. But how different are they? Lydia, this wealthy CEO, businesswoman, and then this girl with no name, possessed and oppressed. Lydia is like the CEO of Versace, and this slave girl is like the woman drug addicted, prostituting herself under I-95. Two very different people, and yet what do we see? Both are invited to belong to God's family. The CEO and the oppressed. Both are invited to belong to God's family. Because God invites everybody to belong. Everyone is welcome. But see, God isn't done. He's up to something, but he's not done. There's one more person that he wants to set free, that he wants to awaken, and it's a jailer. You see, after this takes place with this slave girl, after this happens, her owners are not only just angry, like they're upset, but they're so mad that they go to some of the magistrates that have power to beat and imprison people and kind of rule the city. And they, they tell them what happens. These men are threats. There are problems. We need to do something about it. And so they, they take Paul and Silas and they beat them publicly in the street. They've done nothing wrong. It's completely unjust, but they don't care. They beat them in the street. And then they put them in jail, in the inner part of the jail. They lock the door. They put them in stocks, in bonds. It says that night that Paul and Silas are singing songs of praise. The jailer's there. He probably heard the stories. He knows who they are. He heard about the slave girl. He probably heard about Lydia, too. She was probably a prominent name, figure in the city. Now he hears Paul and Silas singing and praying to God while they're imprisoned and been treated so justly. In the middle of the night, an earthquake comes. And this earthquake shakes open the doors of the prison, shakes off the bonds of all the prisoners. The lights are out, it's pitch black. Shakes all the candles that are providing light. They all hit the ground and the jailer seeing what's happening and hearing what's happening, experiencing what's happening, 
presumes that all, all the prisoners, of course, left. <laughs> I mean, it's free escape. So he takes his sword and he's about to take his life. Paul says, hey, wait. Turn on the lights. Light the candle right there. We're all here. No one's left. Stops him from killing himself. Taking his own life. And what's so interesting is the jailer's response. You see, the jailer's first words to Paul and Silas are not, why would you stay? His first words are, what must I do to be saved? I heard about you with Lydia. I heard about the slave girl. I mean, I heard you singing, praising. I mean, obviously, this natural disaster, really, in this earthquake is got to be God. What must I do to be saved? He's awakened. In verse 31, Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And the jailer does. He believes faith in Jesus. It says that he takes them home and he, he washes their wounds. You see, they had wounds because of the bonds. They had wounds because of the beatings. And the jailer goes and he begins to wash their wounds. And then he's baptized, and his household is baptized too. And they have a meal together, and then they begin to rejoice and to praise God for his grace that he awakened this jailer to the truth of Jesus Christ and the salvation offered in belief to him. See, what is God doing? He comes to open the heart of a moralistic, wealthy woman who is bought into this system of morality and he frees her from that. He comes to this girl with no name who is a slave, who's being used. and He frees her from the very spirit that possesses her and also from those that were oppressing her and her owners that had no use for her any longer. And then he comes to the jailer who had bought into the system of oppression, had no problem with it, and awakens him to the truth of the gospel, to the very system that he was a part of, to where he is actually walking out with Paul and Silas and inviting them to his house to eat and to have their wounds cleansed. God is rescuing and inviting the moralist, the oppressed, and the oppressor to belong in his home, to belong to his family. He's inviting all different types of people. Everyone is invited. What does Paul say? He says, what must I do to be saved? And this is true for you. Doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter who you are, this is true for you too, which is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You're a moralist, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You've been oppressed, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You've been an oppressor, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God is building his home. He is building his family where everybody belongs. You see, 
For Lydia, her faith previously was useful. It was useful for her to have this moral code, try to follow the law of God. She's probably a very disciplined woman, being so wealthy. So it worked for her. It was useful. The slave girl, she had no faith, but the faith that other people had in her was useful because it made a lot of money for her owners. And the system that the jailer was a part of and bought into was so deeply ingrained within him that he knew the prisoners escaped even though it's not my fault, it's an earthquake, but they're going to take my life because they escaped, so I might as well take my own life. He's awakened. And that faith was useful to him. Provided him a vocation and comfort. And what does God do? He takes the useful faith of each of these three characters and he transforms it into beautiful faith. Because it's faith not in a system. It's faith not in a state. It's faith not in yourself. It's faith in Christ. And here's what's so beautiful about it. The beauty is found in the individual change, the profound individual change that takes place and the profound systemic change. That is where you see the beauty here. See, what do we see? We see profound individual change in Lydia. Her heart is opened to the reality that it's not about being a good person and just following these rules. It is about surrendering to Jesus and believing in Jesus and receiving grace, that God's home is a place of grace. And then we see in the girl with no name, who was a slave, we see in her this system that pressed down upon her, this spirit that oppressed her, that she's freed from by the power of the gospel. She does nothing. Paul utters the words for the spirit to be cast out and the spirit frees and she is free. That God's word and his truth and his goodness is powerful to free you. And she is liberated. See, God's home is a place of freedom. And then what do we see with the jailer? The jailer has his mind awakened awakened to the reality that he was a complicit in an oppressive, unjust system that put Paul and Silas and many others previously there in jail, beat them. And he's awakened to the truth of the gospel and the brokenness of the world that he's been a part of. You see, God's home is a place of awakening. It's what God is doing here. He is showing us that Individual change, profound individual change results so often in profound systemic change. You see, the magistrates here are angry, but they also recognize the issue. Because after this takes place where the jailer goes with Paul and Silas and washes their wounds and he comes to faith and they eat a meal together the magistrates that unjustly beat Paul and Silas and imprison them, they find out that they're actually Roman citizens. And there's a problem here. And people are going to start to see 
the wickedness of this system is going to be exposed for what it is. And so they say, listen, you can go in peace. You can leave. No issues, no problem. Just go quietly. Go silently. Leave our city, Paul and Silas, and your friends. But it's okay. No more charges. Everything's dropped. Paul and Silas say, no. Nope. We're not going to leave quietly. We're not going to go silently. You have to come publicly apologize to us to expose the evil that you've been a part of. And that's what they do. Why? Why don't Paul and Silas just say, okay, you know, everything was good. We saw Lydia come to faith. We saw this slave girl come to faith. And now God used this experience to bring the jailer to faith. And they're dropping all the charges, no issue. So we'll just go silently. But they say no. Why? Because the gospel is concerned with individual change and systemic change. Both. The gospel is concerned with both, and so are Paul and Silas. They're concerned with both of these things. You see, the gospel is the power to save and redeem. The gospel is the power to bring about salvation. But it is also the power to serve a broken system. It is the power to justify sinners and also demand justice for sin. This is the good news, the good news of the gospel. And oftentimes individual change, profound individual change is a catalyst for profound systemic change. It's what happens with the jailer. It's what happens with the slave girl. I'm sure it's what happens with Lydia and that whole group of women and everybody else that was operating in her business and in her world. It is a catalyst for systemic change. And sometimes systemic change is necessary for more individual change to take place. Listen to what I said. Sometimes systemic change is necessary for more individual change to take place. Paul and Silas understand it's not just about the jailer and Lydia and the slave girl. It's about so many other people in Philippi, so many other people that are oppressed by a system, so many other people that are complicit in an oppressive system, so many other people that think that just being a good person and moral is going to get them to salvation, make them happy. It's about seeing people's hearts and minds freed to the truth of the gospel and seeing the very systems that enslave them broken down and exposed for what they are. There's a book that I want to share with you by Robert Lithencomb. It's called City of God, City of Satan. And I want to read you a little part where he tells this true story of an experience he had. Because I think it is powerful, it's impactful, and it's challenging. He tells a story uh, when he was a young man. And he spent the summer doing evangelism and ministry in a big city as a youth pastor. And he met this girl named Eva. Now, Eva was from the projects. She was from a very poor background. She was a black girl and was exceptionally beautiful. Her background was filled with crime and drugs all throughout her extended family. And she felt like she had no future in fact, her school was terrible, and at age 14, she was almost entirely illiterate. And she became a Christian under Robert's ministry. 
as a youth pastor. She began to get engaged in Bible studies. She started growing in her faith. She went back to school. But the pressures of her environment continued to push down upon her. Namely, the pressure to enter into a life of prostitution. Pressed on her by a neighborhood gang that recruits poor women from the projects and exploits them for wealthy men in the suburbs. And she didn't want to join the game, the, the gang, or she didn't want to enter into prostitution is what she told Robert, her youth pastor. But the gang wanted her to be a part of it. And so Robert's advice to her was this. He said to her, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He told her to stay away from the gang, to continue to stay in school, to stay engaged in the youth ministry, to stay engaged in reading your Bible and doing Bible studies. You see, Robert had to leave the city and he had to go somewhere else just for an internship. He told her, all of, do all of these things and you'll be able to resist temptation. So he left. A year later, he came back. Came back to see his friends and was excited to see Eva and how much she had grown in the faith in her life. And he found out that Eva had gone into prostitution. He found her actually later and he started berating her. He said, why didn't you continue just to go to your Bible study and go to youth group and stay in school? She said, Robert, you don't understand. See, these men came and told me that I looked good and they wanted me to be a prostitute. And if I wasn't, they would beat up my father and my brother. And they did just that. They beat up my father. They beat up my brother to the point where he was hospitalized and they threatened my mother. And so I joined. I entered into this life. And then Robert Linthencombe, the author of the book, he said to her, Eva, that's just so terrible. You should have trusted God and gone to the police. And she said, who do you think the men were? It was the police that came and beat up my father and my brother and threatened my mother. He says this, I suddenly realized I don't think it's going to be enough to help her by just converting her and getting her to a Bible study. I've got to do something about the system. You see, the gospel comes to us and the gospel says that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The gospel brings about profound individual change, psychological change, heart change, all by grace, and everyone is invited to receive the grace of God. Galidia, the slave girl, and the jailer. But the gospel also comes to bring about profound systemic change, to expose wickedness, to root out evil. Because God's home is a home where everybody can belong, but it's not a home where we relax. See, God's home is not a fortress that you get invited into by God's grace through faith in Christ and then you just stay inside. No, it is a home 
where you come to find refuge and healing, but it is a home that you are sent out from to bring redemption and restoration. Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke understood this. And this is how I live, how they lived. See, God's home is a place to belong and to be strengthened and then to go battle. Systemic sin and individual sin. Listen, church, everybody wants to peg the church as one thing or the other. Everybody wants to try to peg the church, especially right now, as a woke church or a conservative church. Which one are you? Are you woke church or are you conservative church? And I'm not saying that we at Crossbridge have done this perfectly by no means. But here's what I do know. The gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to be a church that is a home where everybody can belong and it compels us to be a church where we go battle sin and expose it within the systems of our city and our world. See, the gospel calls us to be a church that you can't peg. A church that's about social justice and personal evangelism. A church that's about sharing Christ to see profound individual change and showing Christ to expose the broken systems that we know operate so much of our world. We are called to share and to show Christ, to be a part of a home where we can belong and also that we can go battle. See, these encounters were not happenstance. They weren't happenstance. God takes Paul and Silas and, and Luke and Timothy to Lydia first and then to the slave girl, then to the jailer because he's showing something to them. He's showing something to that community and he's showing something to us. And he's showing us that the church is a home to belong for everybody. Everyone is invited, but it's also a home to battle. And you don't just see this here in Acts 16. It's not just here. Look at the cross. What do we see at the cross? We see profound individual change, profound individual change made possible by the atoning death of Christ. See, our hearts and our minds, our lives are changed because Jesus' death on the cross, because he died for your sin and mine, because he died for your shame and mine, because he died for your guilt and mine. Christ died for the moralist, he died for the oppressed, and he died for the oppressor. He died for all people, and he invites you to belong to his family. Profound individual change is made possible only through the cross. But also what we see in the cross is profound systemic change. Let me say, wait a second. How do we see profound systemic change on the cross? Well, who is Jesus? He was an innocent man, unjustly tried, beaten, tortured, spit upon, humiliated, falsely accused, condemned to death. And what did he do to deserve it? Nothing. But there was a system in place that made that very thing possible. A system that he in fact surrendered to so that he might redeem it. You see, here's what took place on the cross. The accusers of Jesus and Satan himself thought that this was the final blow. The system that had been set up, this evil and corrupt and unjust system, was going to prevail. 
Jesus was going to die. But the very system set to crush him, he crushed himself through his death and his resurrection. You see that? To this point today, we wear on our necks and tattoo on our bodies and hold out for everybody else the very symbol of that oppressive system. The very symbol of evil and death. The cross. Why? Because Jesus Christ brought about profound systemic change through his death and his resurrection. It's where we own that symbol now. Because it is a symbol of our profound individual change and it is a symbol of the change that we are called to be a part of as followers of Christ. Agents of redemption. Anything, even something so evil can be redeemed. Because God is setting up a home where everybody can belong and his end goal is to make his home here where there is no longer any type of oppression, any type of unjust system because he is using you and me and his church and he is overseeing the redemption and the restoration of all of it. See, we have a home to belong, church, and I hope you have come to find that. I hope you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and know that you are welcomed and you are received just as you are. Despite who you are. Because God is working in you to battle the individual sin that plagues you and me. And he's working in you and me to battle the sin and the wickedness and the brokenness that we see in this world that holds people down. So that we might see even more profound individual change. See, we're to be compelled by the cross, church be people that have found a home to belong and a, a home sent out to go battle. So I pray that we will be that type of church and that you will join in to be that with us. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for who you are and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your example, Christ. That is the very reason why we are here, why we can worship and know that we are loved is because of your death and your resurrection, because you atoned for our sin on the cross, because you overthrew an oppressive system and you redeemed it through your death and your resurrection, where we know that if we just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. Whether we're the moralist, whether we are oppressed, whether we have been an oppressor, we are all invited to your church, to your home to find grace and freedom and awakening. I pray that we would receive that. That we would be changed by that to be agents of change. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.